This is the Oanda Podcast. Brought to you by Jazz FM's Business Breakfast. This is the Oanda Market Insights Podcast with me, Johnny Hart. Each week we review the week's business and market news with Oanda Senior Market Analyst Craig Earlham in London and Ed Moyer in New York. So the FTSE closed 65 points lower today to 5,415. So that's about 100 points down on the week. So after last week's extreme turbulence, by recent standards, markets have been a bit calmer this time around. Why do you think that is, Ed? I think right now we're taking a look at the general uh, market behavior and the panic selling has pretty much ended. Uh, We saw that the fiscal and monetary response all across the world um, really uh, alleviated uh, uh, some of the the initial concerns that we were going to see, not just a depression-like instance, but um, also uh, structural damage to the financial system. So there's been a lot of optimism starting to to grow that we're probably going to see easy money flowing into these markets and uh, provide some uh, short-term relief for risky assets. Uh, But right now, it's it's still all about the uh, coronavirus and its spread. And there's still growing concern that it is intensifying. Uh, New York had its uh, significant rise and its deadliest day in surges. Uh, and, and there's growing concern that the, the rest of the country is going to see uh, uh, similar results because uh, the U.S. did not really have a, a strong uh, mitigation effort put in place. There's lots of uh, market drivers right now, but I, I think right now the, the volatility has definitely eased up. Uh, but uh, we're, we're starting to see uh, markets try to price in exactly, you know, how long will this economic slump last? And uh, no one can calculate that until we know the uh, lifehood of this uh, virus. Craig, do you think markets are still a bit in denial? Because when you look at the awful mortality figures coming out of the United States, and of course over here in the United Kingdom, not quite as bad exponentially as they seem to be in the US, but we are not even close to even the beginning of the end of this. I find it astonishing that markets are, I wouldn't say positive or optimistic, but certainly not as turbulent as you might expect under the circumstances at this stage. I think we have to remember a few things. One is there is always a FOMO element in the markets. People are afraid that they've missed out on picking the bottom. And so they're always looking to buy. Uh, there's always this desire to try and buy the correct dip. We saw it earlier on uh, with China when we started to see deceleration there. Uh, and there was this kind of hope that this was not going to spread outside the borders of China, which we discussed at the time was uh, a ludicrous assumption. And I feel like what we've, we're seeing now is not necessarily similar, but it's the same idea. The only the big difference is that we are trading in heavily, heavily discounted markets at this point. So the, the, there is reason for people to maybe see value, um, even if the market is going to dip a little bit further. We are still seeing an acceleration in cases across the, uh, most of the Western world, though, and that is the major uh, concerning point for me. And that's why I'm of the opinion that we haven't yet bottomed. But people getting in at these levels aren't necessarily saying that the market's bottomed. All they're saying is that there is value. And there is value. I think most people agree that markets are going to be much higher than where they are now in a year's time. So if you're a long-term investor, this market still represents value. And the other thing that we have uh, is the fact that the volatility, the wild, wild volatility, which encapsulated the market's 
throughout the latter part of February and the early part of March has eased up somewhat. So we're still seeing, we saw 6% decline last Friday, which now doesn't seem extraordinary when when previously it would have. But that was a, a massive markdown compared to where we were previously. And then throughout this week, it's been uh, less extreme. Maybe people have seen how we had the three winning days last week, the biggest three-day gain in the Dow since 1933. Monday's Open wasn't too bad and we saw a nice bounce back. And while Trump's warning midweek was severe and it was a huge change in tone, I think there is also an element of investors looking at the situation right now and going, I think the panic's passed. And that's a good thing. The markets can still go down, but it's the panic which can cost you so much more money. The fact that there's a belief growing that the panic has passed is going to start to tempt people back in. Okay, we've had the latest jobs figures out today, Ed, for the United States non-farm payroll day, of course. And, uh, well, no surprise, really. The jobs growth of the last decade or so has certainly come to an abrupt halt in March. Employers shedding just over 700,000 jobs amid the coronavirus outbreak. I suspect that those figures are very out of date because these figures are taken a little bit earlier in the month, aren't they? Unemployment rate rose to 4.4 percent that's the biggest one month jump since 1975 but we have a long long way to go don't we as far as unemployment is concerned and it's going to get much much worse very much so and i think uh, as you, you highlighted uh, this data was was pretty much uh backward looking i think um none of the government mandated shutdowns that were you know put firmly across the country were are not being reflected by these numbers but it shows you that businesses were concerned uh, we did see that the non-farm payroll really uh, kind of surprised people and, and just how how severe the drop was and it's supposed to get even worse next month and i, I think you're probably going to uh, see uh, investors really just focus on those jobless claims numbers because right now uh, 10 million Mar- Americans over the past two weeks have filed unemployment claims and if, if we're starting to see the impact start to to spread across the country you know there's there's the there's no reason why we shouldn't expect that to, to possibly double so I think you're probably going to see uh, markets remain very concerned that you're, you're gonna see uh, some permanent damage to the economy why are we not seeing the stock market yet sell off? I think there's some optimism that the uh, government's ability to, to implement a, like a broad-based uh, support, uh, whether it's a small business program, whether it's uh, helicopter money and giving uh, individuals cash, it's helping. Uh, but I, I think until we can really uh, understand the, the the full duration of uh, this uh, shutdown to the U.S. economy, we're going to see uh, businesses uh, not be able to, to keep people on staff and uh, that that's going to really probably be the main catalyst when we start to see uh, things fall apart and that might kind of uh, make you know last week a bear market rally. Our Chancellor Rishi Sunak announced some extraordinary measures to try and help businesses and save jobs. How do those measures in the UK compare to what you just alluded to in the United States? Do you think they've gone far enough in the US? They've exceeded expectations, and not just uh, the manner of the response, but in the timeliness. Uh, there, there's only so much government can do. I mean, the, the economy is closed right now, You're, and you're probably going to see it close well beyond April. May is, is pretty much, uh, I think, a given. And uh, the question is, is it going to be June, July, 
August. And there's going to be a lack of a potential uh, response. I think they're they're running out of arsenal right now to really deliver another key round of stimulus. So the investors are, are going to go skeptical as far as how much government and, and uh, central banks can do. I want to talk about the oil price, guys. Big recovery today from Brent crude up nearly 10% as we stand at the moment to just below $33 a barrel. And uh, WTI is up as well. Of course, this is on the back of those talks between Russia and Saudi Arabia as regards to the reduction of supply. But that's not a done deal yet, is it, Craig? No, so there's going to be an emergency meeting on Monday of OPEC plus and others. The US hasn't confirmed that it's going to be taking part, but I think it's pretty likely there is going to be someone from the US side there, and there's going to be a lot of discussions happening now over the weekend. So the situation we have now is that Russia refused to be part of any cuts at the start of March, and the speculation would suggest that that was a lot to do with the fact that they were effectively growing tired of seeing their market share decline while the US shale industry prospered. Uh, and they saw this as an opportunity to say, we can afford oil at these levels, and we now want to protect our own market share. We just can't continue cutting all the time, cutting all the time, and watching the US uh, benefit as a result. And then a lot changed. They said themselves, the reason why they're uh, interesting come back to the table is because a lot has changed since that last meeting. Uh, but that doesn't mean that their view on the U.S. has necessarily changed. Uh, so if we're looking at a situation with the Russians and the Saudis and the rest of OPEC and other non-OPEC nations talking about cuts again as they were a month ago, I'm not actually convinced we do see a, ma- a massive cut. I think as far as the Russians are concerned, the U.S. needs to be involved and so do others. This needs to be kind of a global oil production cut rather than an OPEC plus, almost like an OPEC plus, 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 if you will. It's uh, And this is, uh, I'm not sure if this has ever happened before, but this is a huge move if this is what we're going to see because the difficulty we have with the U.S. is the fact they're all private producers. So what Trump is going to have to do, rather than Mohammed bin Salman, for example, where he can just order them to reduce production. Trump is going to have to have conversations with all the big oil producers there and ask them to each agree to their own production cuts and coordinate it that way. Now, I'm not saying that can't happen. I think it can happen. And I'd say at this moment in time, I'd say it probably will. But if he can't convince them to do so, then I don't think the Russians are going to be on board. So I think this all hangs on Trump's ability to persuade the U.S. shale industry to cut back. What he has in his favour is the fact that this week, uh, I think they're called Whiting Petroleum, they applied for Section 11, I think, administration. So basically, they're on the verge of going bust. They need to restructure the business. And I think there's going to be plenty more behind them who are going to follow. This is a shale industry that's heavily indebted. So there may be a number of players within that industry who are willing to cooperate in order to try and stabilise oil prices more towards $40, $50 a barrel so that many more of these firms can survive. But it's going to be a really busy weekend if you are Trump and the rest of his administration. And then everyone is going to be watching that Monday meeting, that Monday conference conference call very, very closely. And as you said, I can't remember this sort of coalition amongst the oil producers ever happening. This is a one-off, surely, is it not, Ed? Pretty much. And and I, th- I think right now you have to take a look at why is this happening. And all of the major oil producing countries are looking at their global storage capacities. And tankers are being filled. Uh, there, there's concern that if these uh, production levels were to remain in place, we would see 
no more room for storing oil in, around May. The Russians are pretty much forced to deliver some production cuts and to kind of keep uh, this uh, optimism going. Because uh, if they didn't act, Russia would basically be forced to uh, stop production. And the, the problem is that if you take a look at who has offshore, onshore drilling, Russia has a lot of their oil on old Soviet fields that has to travel through thousands of miles of pipelines. So the, the risk for Russia is that they would have to kind of um, cut production. But unfortunately, when you have tight reservoirs, uh, they're going to get shut down. They're not going to come back online. So Russia is really in a position where they're, they're going to have to slow down their production. And they might as well have the rest of the world deliver production cuts. And you're going to see the U.S., cooperate brazil canada is this is going to be you know a one-off event uh but but it, it's it's something that you're, you're gonna see that everyone is going to be on the same page uh so you know typically russia is the one that kind of derails these opec plus meetings but i i would be extremely surprised if if, if uh that were the case on monday and and you're probably and uh, right now some of the early reports are that well the U.S. can't officially join a cartel and really say give hard commitments. Uh, the independent oil producers are saying they're going to voluntary cut output. So I think right now there is a tremendous amount of upside uh, as far as optimism goes that you're going to see some type of an arrangement. But uh, in the end, these uh, if it's 10, 15 uh, million barrel of cuts that are agreed upon, that's still not going to make up for the demand devastation that uh, we're seeing with uh, much of the global economy come to a halt. So you're, you're probably going to see this as a, a, an event that might provide a, a big move higher, but um, it's still in, in the short term in the next couple of months, you're probably going to see lower oil prices kind of remain the theme because we're not going to see uh, much more optimism in place uh, until we, we see a return of travel and trade. And right now it, it looks like these uh, social distancing measures are not going to go away anytime soon uh, in, in the U.S. and in Europe, and that's really going to derail a lot of uh, use for crude. So I think you're going to probably see low oil in the short term. But right now, the, this is a, a very uh, positive risk risk on story that, uh, you know, higher oil prices has helped the stock market. So if we didn't have this surge in oil prices, we'd probably see uh, the S&P and the FTSE 100 be down um, even uh, much further from these levels. So definitely a story to watch, but I, I think you're going to see something um, reached upon um, early next week. Just to add to what Ed said as well, the other factor that we have to really think about here is whether any production cut, which they do agree, is going to be enough. Trump, in his tweet, said that it was going to be at least 10 million barrels a day that was going to be cut, which sounds like a lot when global oil production at its peak was just shy of 100 million barrels. But when you're seeing that even some of the most conservative estimates are suggesting that we're seeing a 15 million barrel a day shortfall at this moment in time in terms of demand, that doesn't even make up for more than two-thirds of that, let alone if the actual shortfall is more than 15 million barrels a day. It's going to be really difficult to kind of shore up these markets and hit that $50 a barrel level that I'm sure many of these producers would actually like to see. So I think there's still a number of factors at play and I think there's still a lot of negotiations to be had because while this is a promising step and it's probably going to stop us seeing $10 a barrel, if anyone's hoping that this is going to deliver 40 or $50, I think that may be a bit of a stretch because these are very unusual circumstances. And as Ed's already alluded to, this is not a situation that the market can naturally correct itself. 
under ordinary circumstances, when oil becomes this cheap, demand just picks up. But demand isn't picking up because many of the airlines that use fuel are grounded. Many people who use their cars are staying indoors. Many businesses who use their trucks and lorries are not operating. So this is not a normal supply-demand scenario. So if OPEC plus 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 want to actually have any real impact on this market and get these oil prices back to sustainable levels they have to come at us with a much bigger cut than just 10 million barrels and uh, looking at the currency markets guys uh, the dollar is still pretty strong is that because it's sort of the global currency of choice ed and uh, no matter what happens in the united states despite these awful numbers of deaths over the last few weeks in new york particularly people still go towards the dollar pretty much so uh, the dollar is still king we're, we're going to see it be the preferred safe haven um when we take a look at uh just where investors are going um dollar is number one tre- and it's a lot of that is because treasury demand is firmly in place i, I think i think right now when you take a look at yields 10-year yield on the u.s treasuries is um, j- just below uh, 60 basis points there's there's a lot of optimism uh that you know the dollar is going to still remain fairly supported here uh but eventually eventually you're going to start to see uh when we see the uh the light of the end of this coronavirus pandemic tunnel you're going to see all of these uh measures done by the fed um really start to weigh on it so i think you're going to have currency volatility is here to stay and you're probably going to see uh the dollar eventually in the the, the latter part of the year just significantly weaken if the virus is under control so i i think you're going to have volatility remain pretty pretty elevated here but right now uh you know especially this week uh, we've seen the, the dollar consistently strong yeah i think i agree with much of what ed's just said uh, and I think the the only other thing as well, probably to add to this, apart from the safe haven elements of the uh, U.S. dollar, which has been clear if you just look at a dollar index chart, is the dollar funding side of things as well. I have heard it, and it suggested that the Fed's efforts to provide plenty of dollar liquidity uh, around the world. We've got to remember uh, in all of this, the Fed is the U.S. central bank, but it's effectively the world's central bank as well. And it, this, this kind of shortfall in dollar funding may be one of the things which is driving up demand so much and maybe supporting uh, the dollar uh, as much as it is. This is not necessarily my area of expertise, so take that maybe with a pinch of salt. But if that is one of the things, that, that this kind of potential shortfall or perceived shortfall is one of the things that's driving up demand for the US dollar, then that's potentially something that we should maybe keep an eye on in the coming weeks. Okay, guys, we're going to have to leave it there. Thanks very much for joining us today. From the team behind Jazz FM's Business Breakfast, a daily early morning 30-minute briefing for the day ahead. On air from 6am. Listen to Jazz FM on DAB, online or just ask Alexa.